Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Colin Mustful, your host today, and I'm delighted to be joined by Roger Robinson, author of the book, When Running Made History. Roger, thank you for joining me today. Colin, it's really good to be with you. Thank you very much for inviting me. Roger Robinson is a literary scholar, award-winning writer, and longtime elite runner. He has represented England and New Zealand in world championships, set records as a master at Boston, New York, Vancouver, and other marathons, and returned after a knee replacement to set records in the over-70 age group. He is the author or editor of works such as Oxford Companion to New Zealand Literature and was a senior writer for Running Times. Robinson has published often in Runner's World, Canadian Running, and European magazines. He lives in New York State and Wellington, New Zealand, with his wife, running pioneer Catherine Switzer. Roger, I'd like to start with uh, just how confident you are in your uh, perspective on running and your sport. In your sport, um, at one point you write, "I can't or won't be dryly objective when I describe how running takes a leadership role in the things that have transformed society in my lifetime." So I'd like you to talk a little bit about what this book is and, and what this book isn't. Yeah, well, that's uh, that's a strongly personal statement. And, and one of the things I decided to do in this book, Colin, was uh, not write just conventional history. That's, that's how it started. Uh, it started because I felt there was a need for a history of the modern running movement. So I conceived it and did quite a lot of research and got materials together for the history of the running movement from, say, about, well, either 1960, you could start with a baby bikila, or sometime in the 1970s with the great American running boom. But as I wrote, I realized that um, I'd actually been around and been involved in a lot of the events. Uh, and this was a sport that I knew intimately from the, from the inside, from all kinds of different perspectives. And then it it occurred to me that I could actually make use of that uh, and write a different kind of book, and one that would prepare for the formal historians uh, and the more academic sports historians to write that full history. I could write one that, that was both history and also personal. And so a statement like that that, that you quoted is is one that um, certainly comes from you know my passion for the sport, and people have often said that my love for it come comes through the book. Uh, but at the same time, it's a, it's a, it's a personal passion, which is informing, um, a reliable and carefully researched history. That that's the, that's the balance I tried to strike. I think you did that very well. And certainly the passion does come across, uh, when you mentioned that, I think of the race you described versus Jim McNamara, uh, <laughs> yes, in your yes. 50s. um, and also the first chapter kind of sets things up nicely when you talk about the 1948 Olympics and how you saw it as a boy. And I was really um, 
enamored with your ability of description, your literary abilities. So can you talk a little bit about how you describe these events? Uh, yeah, well, I'm, I'm grateful to you for, for really starting with, with that, Colin, because, um, you know, it's, it's not just an information book. It's not, it's not a how-to book, and, it, and it's more than, a, more than a history. I'm, I am a historian because, as you said, I'm, I'm a literary scholar, and that's involved writing a lot of literary history. Uh, but um, that's not my prime profession. I'm, above, above all, I'm a writer, and, and uh, I wanted to make this a really well and interestingly written book. So just for instance, um, that first chapter, you know, I write from the point of view of a nine-year-old boy, and, and the first few pages especially are limited to the, the kind of observation and to a great extent the language of, of a nine-year-old boy. It's, it's if, if you like, my, uh, my little exercise in James Joyce's portrait of the artist as, as a young man, a kind of the, the getting the child's perspective. And I try and get that sense of wonder of the little boy uh, coming out of uh, very impoverished circumstances and, and having lived life almost entirely during World War II, because I was born in 1939, um, and then coming into that Olympic stadium and, and seeing both the vast crowd and then something just quite, quite new, quite unprecedented going on with, with these athletes from all over the world. And including, and this is the perspective I wanted to get from the historical point of view, including athletes from what were then being seen increasingly as our likely enemies, the communist states. Uh, and then suddenly this man in, in the red shirt of Czechoslovakia, uh, revealing himself to be such a, such a character, um, so eccentric. This is Emil Zetterbeck because he was... He was so ungainly looking, and he writhed, and he and he suffered as 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 he ran. And I was taking all. And then he, and then he was um, and then he beat he beat the world, but beat them in a remarkably generous and uh, more compassionate and friendly way. Uh, so that he was actually congratulating the other runners as he as he lapped them. It was really quite remarkable, you know. And so what I tried to get was the boys, little boys' sense of wonder and learning and, and taking all this in and seeing, well, we don't have to hate these people because they're wearing red. You know, they, they might be nice. And, and he's obviously nice because he was patting this Frenchman on the shoulder as he lapped him. And, uh, it was a quite extraordinary mixture of, um, of his supremacy as a runner at that time, uh, but also his remarkable generosity as a person. And of course, Zatebeck is known for that now, but, but I was nine years old and I had no idea. I'd never heard of him until, until that moment. So yeah, I tried to get that um, the, the innocence, uh, the ingenuousness of the child's observation, uh, and then and then the other one you mentioned. Well, yes, I uh, the twenty first chapter was was in a way an addition to the book because uh, the publisher and and I both felt that there should be something about oh running for older people and and to, to kind of complete the coverage. And so I couldn't resist uh, starting that chapter with uh, a race that I won. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, run, runners will appreciate this. Uh, your historical listeners probably won't know what we're talking about. But um, you imagine if, if you're a fisherman, you want to talk about the biggest fish you ever, you ever caught. Uh, and so as a runner, your favorite conversation is about the races that you won. So I, I had I had fun writing that one, as well as writing it as a bit of a how-to as to how to um, think your way through such a race and 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 run it run it tactically. 
Uh, well, it's, there's a great picture there in Chapter 21 of you against uh, Jim. I uh, enjoyed that photo. You mentioned older runners in that, that chapter. Um, I don't remember what the title of the chapter was, but uh, in it you, you, you state that the success of older runners recalibrates human potential. Can you talk, what do you mean by that exactly? I, I mean that uh, the image of age has always been decrepitude and incompetence and, you know, King Lear losing his temper and, and losing control and, this, and the, the whole idea of dotage. Uh, and Shakespeare's seven ages of seven ages of man, and 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 you you you're declining into this into this shuffling wreck. Uh, well, you know I'm 79 now, and and don't um, don't feel as if I'm a shuffling wreck. And ru- when you see people run, when you when when I saw Ed Whitlock uh, running a, a, a marathon not much outside three hours at the age of 80. I realized that something quite extraordinary was going on, and and then the the incident that I that I uh, made that ch- made central to that chapter uh, was seeing a woman called Libby James um, from Colorado uh, break 25 minutes for four 5k at the age of 80. I mean, it was really an amazing performance, and these are things which in our parents' generation, my parents' generation anyway, uh, would have been totally unthinkable. The idea of people even doing something, even continuing to run past the age of, say, say 30 or something. And in my lifetime, as I've got older, uh, really the world has been recalibrating its view of age progressively. You know, we, I, we were doing things at 40 that people hadn't done before and, and, and the same at 50. And, and now you've got the likes of Ed Whitlock and now extraordinarily somebody else has come along and broken even his records that we thought were impregnable for a decade at least. And and so it seems that uh, for whatever reasons, you know, social change, better nutrition, better health, et cetera, et cetera, um, things are happening in, with with aging and running is leading it. That was the point I was making. The, the title of the book is When Running Made History. And that's one way in which running has not made but led history, uh, has been part, part of the frontier of that movement. And the whole idea of um, exercise is medicine, which is now a mantra of the American Academy of Sports Medicine. Uh, and that now applies right through. No, the people don't put old, old people to bed anymore and, and, or, or wheel them around in wheelchairs. Sure. They expect them, expect them to get up and actually do something. And we all know that the more you do, the longer you're going to last. Uh, and that attitude, there have been other sources, of course, you know, long distance hiking and other activities, but running has been at the, at the, at the absolute leading point of this. Yeah. Uh, let's uh, back up a little for listeners um, and kind of go over some of these these events so that, that you all you witnessed all of them and, and indeed uh, share a, a breadth of history uh, throughout your lifetime related to running. But I was curious, first of all, is there anything that you missed? I was so amazed by how much you included were there any races that that you regret having missed? Oh, where I wasn't there. Oh, yeah. oh, oh, yes, <laughs> yes, yes. I was very sorry I wasn't there when when Pheidippides ran ran from well, you know, sure. mar- marathon <laughs> in your lifetime. <laughs> I would like to have seen that. Uh, probably. Well, well, two two key ones in a way. All our friends said, "Oh, run, when running made history, you'll be writing about Catherine's Boston Marathon." 
Uh, and I said, well, no, because I wasn't there, so I didn't see it. And, and I refer to it, but it's not a central episode. The other key one would have been the 1976 New York City Marathon. Uh, because that seems to have been the race that really helped the running boom to explode and and brought that race out of Central Park, took it through the five boroughs of New York, made it a city celebration, and it was all to do with the American Bicentennial, uh, and somehow overnight running went from being the minor eccentric little activity uh, that has always been in my adult lifetime, and suddenly became a mass popular uh, participation activity. That seems to have been the key race. I wish I'd been part of that. I wasn't because I was busy being a professor in New Zealand at the time, so so not a, not a chance. Sure. Well, for the ones you were at, then um, you were there as a as a runner. You were there as a commentator. You were there as an announcer. Um, tell us a little bit about how you became so involved in running and how you came to be a participant in all these uh, major events. Yeah, well, um, I've, I've always loved running and I've also tried to help the sport uh, in, in, in a way that's appropriate to my strengths. And uh, what's that meant, what, what that, that has meant basically is instead of you know, being a timekeeper or a long jump judge or, or something, uh, what I've got is, is, a, is a verbal ability. And so I've nearly always ended up using words in some way, writing about running, which I've done since I was at high school. You know, used to write for the school magazine, um, and then virtually everywhere I've lived, I've I've always written for local local newspapers about running, and then that that has gradually developed into writing for Running Times, and and you know, in two weeks' time in Boston, helping to co- helping Runners World to cover that race, and and so on. Uh, so, and also being a stadium announcer, which is something as I described in the book that happened to me by surprise when I was invited to take that position at the Christchurch Commonwealth Games. And then that led to doing some television commentary um, and well, and, and so on. So I've always been there kind of describing running and trying to bring it to life. And I think the way I see it, Colin, is, is um, me trying to use what verbal ability I have uh, to express the significance of running. Because runners all know it's significant, but they they don't all uh, they're not all always able to articulate it, and they know it matters to them. And when people commit themselves to an activity as much as they do, uh, then it's important. And I thought, with this book especially, that it was important to have somebody write about that activity as well as he possibly could. Uh, because I think running deserves it. I think running, when you talk to anybody, you find out it matters to them so much. It's done so much for people's lives. It's transformed many people's lives. You know, the, you, the, the, the stories are absolutely endless of, of uh, people coming coming back from cancer or alcoholism or, or whatever, or just from bad marriages. Um, is perhaps this is even more so with women than than, than with men. Uh, but in terms of what running does for, for lives in the modern world, it's it's almost like a church. You know, it's, it's it has that kind of service element of of doing something which is individual, but which is also um, done communally. So I was try I try to express that. Um, then then you know I, I'd like to get to the individuals. Individual cases, if if, if I may, um, 
probably the the starting point for the book in its current form. Uh, I mean, I, as I said, I wanted to write um, history of the modern running movement, uh, and have incorporated that, and especially in the timelines at the back, which which I think are going to be absolutely priceless for any future writers, historians. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I, I put together a whole lot of um, stuff that nobody's ever put together before about the running as an industry and running as a culture. Um, so there was that, but but then also there was this um, this other perspective of uh, running being more significant than than just a sport. And the race that first made me see that, I think, was when Catherine Switzer, my wife, and and I were invited to the Berlin Marathon in 1990 because we were old friends with the race director, Horst Milder, uh, and he wanted us there, Catherine, especially for the uh, first time that the race was going through both parts of the city of Berlin, because the wall had just fallen. And that was a day when I realized there's something more than just a race going on here, because uh, it was such a celebration. And we stayed on for the official celebrations of of German reunification three days later, and they were okay, but they were flat by comparison with the marathon. The marathon was the event that really brought everybody out and let everybody kind of express their jubilation. Mm-hmm. The, the the actual night of de, night of reunification. Um, oh, it's interesting. This this is Germany, and and as I say in the book, um, I think the Germans uh, had learned what mass jubilation can lead to, and so they were cautious and and. They didn't want to go too wild over that event, uh, quite quite rightly, but the marathon somehow liberalised all of that, you know, just just um, just just let let it let it loose, let let the jubilation loose, and uh, from that I then realised that what we've got with with modern running, um, and this has gone on being the case, is what I call at one point in the book a new form of celebration. Now this is a, this is a way if you've got something really really important really significant well you can run a marathon or if you want to celebrate the city of your hometown you run a marathon everybody comes out and 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 cheers for it and uh, and it's and it's it's like an expression of of identity uh, and of course then as elsewhere in the book and and several chapters in the book are actually quite solemn um, even gloomy. Uh, marathon, running also has this uh, extraordinary cathartic effect, cathartic, therapeutic, uh, helping a community to recover from something terrible, uh, like New York recovering from 9/11 in in 2001, uh, like a city where I've lived, another city where I've lived, Christchurch, New Zealand, recovering from the earthquake in in uh, which was in, the earthquake was in 2011 and. So the uh, the track meet that we held in 2012 was hugely important in being the first international sports event that that poor battered city had had experienced for over a year. Uh, and it, there's something which is more than just a sport here. That that's that's what I was trying to get. That there's um, it's become something which is both socially beneficial in the in the way it's transforming people's lives and giving them. A positive, uh, positive purpose and sense of community, uh, and it's communally uh, significant in, in the way it helps communities to either celebrate or to mourn, and by mourning to affirm, express resilience, and and move on. 
So those are the things I was, I was trying to get, and, and, and each chapter is, illustrates a different aspect of, of that kind of link between the sport and the history. Well, you, you say you know that you're trying to to express the significance, and I can tell you, you absolutely do. Um, I was just amazed throughout the book at how significant running is, and and, and how many ways it can be significant, not just as a, a sport, but uh, for the culture and the community. So I think you did an excellent job of of conveying that. Uh, in fact, can, I go ahead. Oh, sorry, I was going to say, can I can I just um, talk about the, the chapter, which um, I think, in some ways, historically, is, is well, I won't say is the most important, but but in a way, I'm most proud of, and I think is perhaps the most original. Of course, uh, which is um, I was dealing with the phenomenon of East African athletes, mm-hmm. and the quite unprecedented situation that running as a sport finds itself in, which no activity in history has ever done before, where we've got something which is a global activity, running. And it is dominated, absolutely dominated, by people from a tiny little dot on the on the globe, which is the uh, the upper Rift Valley of of East Africa, and their their, their runners are just so amazingly good at long distance running uh, that, as as I say, uh, Brazilians are good at, at, at soccer, and and uh, you could say Italians are good at music, but no way could you say that 295 of the best 300 singers are Italian uh, or soccer players are Brazilian, but you can say that 295 out of the best 300 runners are Ethiopian or Kenyan or, or from around that area, or they're representing other countries, but they're ethnically from there. And so what I decided to do was look at how our culture has received this extraordinary situation, you know, what we've done about it. And in a way we could be forgiven for, for being a bit resentful or closing the doors or, or limiting the prize money or something. But in fact, what's happened is that the sport of running, well, I'm talking really now about the elite sport, you know, the, the professional level of the sport, has welcomed, embraced, admired, and set out to learn from these remarkable people. Um, and I list the number of things that have gone on of, of journalists and coaches and managers and really everybody in the running industry. I don't know anybody now of any significance in the running industry who hasn't been to Kenya or Ethiopia at least once. And some people have gone and absolutely fallen in love with the place and some people have set up charities and some people have stayed there. Um, but And so what's, what's new about this is that it's like a kind of um, reverse imperialism where for the first time uh, – Western nations are going to Africa not to tell them what religion to worship, not to give them our religion and not to give them our education system or our economic system or whatever else, and not to just rip off their resources, uh, the two things that have happened before, but to learn from them. And now we've got hundreds and hundreds of, of runners going every year to Kenya just to kind of pretty well sit at the feet, just to sit just to go there and learn and experience it and find out what makes these people tick and the friendships and international amity that has been developed from that is is really amazing. And I think it reflects great credit on, on running as a culture that uh, we've, we've embraced this phenomenon and not resented it, but made positive use of it. And now we're we're the ones who who are, who are going there to learn. It's I think nobody's recorded that before, and and um, 
I felt that was well worth doing, and I'm actually very pleased to have to have got something which, as far as I know, is a quite original insight. Yeah, indeed. Um, I, I marked that down, that reverse imperialism that you mentioned. Uh, it was quite an interesting and valid uh, comment. Um, and you say you were you were a commenter at the 1988 cross-country championships well, when they kind of came out, the, these East Africans, is that right? Yes, yes. That was I. I needed. <laughs> I needed a particular event that I was at. I mean, that that's how the book had had kind of become structured. Um, it originally started as being called Twenty Races That Changed the World." So, so originally the race was the focus, and of course I hadn't done anything. So I've been I've been to Kenya, but I hadn't done anything, anything significant there because, like, well, I went there, I could barely run because my knee hurt so much. Um, so that wasn't, I couldn't find anything there. So, so then I realized I'd been TV commentator on that occasion in Auckland when the Kenyan team filled nine of the first 10 places, which is, uh, it's, it, which is just so extraordinary in cross country team running. And if you, if, if any of your listeners have raced high school cross country and you can imagine the championships of all the best high schools in the state or something. And one high school gets gets nine out of the first ten home. It's 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 really, it's really amazing. And what I said on television to try and give get it across to a New Zealand audience is, this is like a, a team winning winning the rugby World Cup by something like two hundred points to two. <laughs> um, so that was I just used that as as the starting point because that was a time when I did get to know quite a lot of the Kenyan athletes and and it's a personal book. Um, so I wanted to put those things in, but then I segue from that experience of seeing them, getting to know them, talking to the coach, finding out how hard they train, uh, uh, and then to the whole phenomenon and how we have received it, uh, and, uh, just, just what is, what it is, what it means, I think, in, in the wider culture for, um, for Africa to be proving itself to be out, so outstandingly good at something. Yeah. A continent otherwise tends to be despised and exploited. Well, so you you talk about it as a commenter, uh, but then I think you also said you had trained with them, and that gives you kind of an inside look, doesn't it? Yes, i i did I did run with them with, uh, in both in Cornwall Park in Auckland, and then uh, perhaps more significantly in. Um, in Seoul when I was doing television commentary that same year, 1988, at the Olympic Games. Um, and because I'd met some of them in Auckland, we knew each other to an extent. And as a journalist, I had a pass to the training track. Uh, and unusually among journalists, I was able to run at least adequately to keep up with their with their with their warm up. <laughs> so, yeah. so, so I was able to have a conversation with with John Ungugi, for instance, and and um, I, I mean, I'm I'm not claiming to know these people intimately, but they they became running friends, you know, running running sure. acquaintances, and I could run with them and recognize each other. Well, uh, speaking of which, you you show they have autographs of several um, very um, great runners. Uh, do you continue to keep a, sort of a scrapbook, or 
I, do, I don't I don't keep autographs any, anymore, yeah. and, and of course these these days they've been totally supplanted by selfies, yeah. <laughs> which which have the same kind of function of of really claiming that you know this person that really all all they've done is sign sign a scrap of paper for you. No, I put those in because I was trying to give the book a sense of real authenticity. Okay. You know, I see it as as grassroots history. I mean, it, it's it's history as well. Uh, but it, but it's also but it's it's grassroots history. It's history, for, you know, from seen through the eyes of a nine-year-old boy or a fourteen-year-old teen, teenage boy. Um, and I wanted to put those autographs in in the same way that in the later chapters, I run the actual articles that I wrote for Runners World or Running Times website at the time of the Boston bombings. You know, literally at the time. I mean, it's uh, the. The bombings happened. Uh, I'd sent in my story on the on the men's race, um, and the editor emailed me because by then we were in lockdown and couldn't actually talk to each other, and said, "Can you do a story on what this means for running?" Which was a big ask, and and it's not the most perfect article, but I wanted to run it as was, you know, just as 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 it as it happened at the time to give give readers that sense of absolute immediacy, and. The um, the autographs of of Roger Bannister and uh, and Arthur Wint try try to do the same thing, and also the page pages from from programs from when I saw the uh, uh, the Olympics in 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 1960, for instance, and saw the Hal uh, the Halberg and Snell victories, and and so reproduced the program just to give the real sense that I was there, and and you know this is how what I wrote on my program page at the time. Uh, so I, I felt that that added added a little something. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you mentioned the the Olympic Games in Seoul in 1988. Um, you were down on the track, and you you have a chapter about that, and you title it "Dirty Running." Uh, what what did you observe there in Seoul, and and how has running has running recovered from that? Yeah, that's a chapter I really didn't want to write. Um, uh, because I, I find the whole drugs issue so distasteful. And in, in fact, the, the chapter, as, as you'll have seen, what it really does more than anything is, is express that distaste. It's a kind of lament uh, for, what's, for the damage that's been done to, to a sport that I love. Uh, and I'm not a scientist, and, and the, um, the, the publisher really wanted to... Um, increase that chapter. And I said, well, there's, there's two limitations. I'm not a scientist, so, so don't understand that. And I, I'm also not an investigative journalist. I just don't have the resources to be an investigative journalist. And you really need somebody who's going to get in behind the scenes and go to the training camps in Kenya and, and, and really learn uh, what's going on. But I, I did what I could from, from my knowledge, which was seeing Ben Johnson there in Seoul, seeing him before the race, and, and just looking at this, this totally distorted human being whose thighs wouldn't even, you know, these thighs rubbed against each other because his muscles are so huge and his eyeballs are yellow. And um, it was a most unpleasant experience. And, and then trying to, uh, as a television commentator, then trying to indicate my reservations, but without, as I said, without getting sued, because uh, you know you can't make accusations that, that, that you that you can't prove. Um, 
And as a journalist, you've got to try and be objective. And so I was trying to steer my way through all that. And the later part of the chapter just goes through several cases uh, of uh, athletes who have been banned for drugs, who I happen to have got to know as a journalist interviewing them at various marathons through the, from say about, you know, 2000, 2005 onwards or, so, or something like that, round about then. Um, and people like, uh, like Gumri, um, who was one of our, as a, as a journalist, was one of our favorite interviews because he was always so good humored and so funny and had this, uh, had this wonderful line about how he'd promised his fiance he was going to marry her when he won a major marathon and he kept finishing second and third. And every time, of course, we would say, you're going to marry your fiance this time and he would crack up laughing. And he was always a very engaging personality. And then not to anybody's surprise, I might say, then he was um, he was found to have been doping all the time and, and, and was banned. So those are the cases that I tried to go into. Not it's it's not it's not a deeply researched chapter. It's it just lists what's going on, gives it a human face by going through four or five such people, laments as to what it means, you know, when when well Sum Gong for instance. Um and I can't say how tragic I feel it is that the first Kenyan woman to win the Olympic marathon then turns out to have been doping and, and it's as if as a historian you're left without any history if you see what I mean you know it's it's suddenly a history is the whole rug of history is pulled out from under your feet and, and and nothing has happened and you can't write about things without remembering as I say who was on what and when and, and it, it gets it gets so complicated and unsatisfactory that, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, Colin, that, that cha- I'm, I'm being incoherent, but that chapter is just a lament. Sure. Uh, and it's what I wanted to say in it is it wasn't that the Ben Johnson case made history, but I think that was the case that brought the whole prevalence of drugs in sport to the world's attention more than any other occasion. And the Balco case uh, followed up on that. Well, uh, regardless, uh, running has become quite popular, and uh, you can't go a weekend without finding a race nearby. Or uh, there's a lot of lotteries now just just to get into the races. And then, aside from that, there are all the businesses, uh, uh, shoes, and race management, uh, apparel, you know, things like that that you you talk about in this book, which you refer to as the running boom. Uh, and it's. Yeah, the- Go ahead, just tell us more about the boom was really the in, in the 1970s when when it just all to, all took off, uh, and those other things I would call those more the running industry, and and because I've been around and made a lot of friends, I was able to include things that nobody had actually thought of as being historically significant before, like um, the guy who developed the first running travel business, for instance. Uh, now a very, very successful business called Marathon Tours, and, and he takes groups all around the world every week. It's a, it's a huge travel business. Or, or the, the one who had the idea of taking runners' photographs at races. Sure. Uh, because, uh, and this is before everybody had a cell phone to carry, to carry during the race. Uh, and he made a very successful business of, of just, just positioning photographers around the course and taking a photograph and then rec- they recognize you by your bib number and, and you can buy a picture of yourself. And that, all of these are great ideas. Uh, and I just wanted to give a sense of the whole industry of it and the culture of it, of course, which is, which is also what interests me, but especially the writing, the, the books and the magazines. 
what what do you attribute the the boom to oh uh that's that that's that's a broad question sure. um, but um it was really you have to say that that affluence if affluence wasn't the cause of it 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 couldn't happen without the degree of material affluence that we have um when people say for instance uh well why weren't women permitted to run well my experience when i was a child almost no woman could possibly have run you know my mother was was bringing up three kids and doing all the washing by hand uh and and cooking the meals and and making clothes and there's no way she would have had time to go out and run that's <laughs> just just absolutely unthinkable so Modern life, modern affluence, uh, modern uh, domestic machinery uh, has all created leisure. Um, You know, a comparison for me would be uh, some some work that I did on on the rise of the novel as a literary form, and and, um, you 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 couldn't get novels until people have two things: time to read them and light to read them. So they need to have enough candles, uh, and that's that's why such a large uh, number of novel readers in the early days are domestic servants because they're the ones that had the domestic candle. And and running, what I'm saying is that running is really like that. So sure. I think the boom happened because people could then afford to go out and give some time in the day to to their running. I, I remember when I was leaving university, and one friend of mine who was uh, a bit better than me, and he was British International Standard, and he said he was going to concentrate on his running for a year. And that seemed to me, well, almost an outrageous thing to do and certainly something that would have been impossible for me to do because I have, there was no way I had that sort of affluence that I could have um, given up, you know, not, not worked for a year. Because I was talking, of course, about a time when running was still amateur, so there was, there was no money to be made at it until the 1980s. So yeah, I think in simple terms, affluence, and then a number of factors uh, have fed into it. Most especially the inclusiveness of running, the um, the huge growth in women's numbers, uh, and the discovery that running is particularly appropriate for women because it gives them that flexibility to to get out whenever they can fit it into their domestic timetable. Uh, combination of work and domesticity. Uh, and it's also something which gives a strong community sense and a strong sense of sisterhood, uh, common effort. And, and this is something which has proved hugely appealing. Uh, so you know, those, I think, are some of the reasons behind the boom. And it just goes on adding people. You know, we were talking a while back about older people. Well, no way 30 years ago would, 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 would a, somebody like me still be, still be running. Um, but now we are, and so you go along to the over seventy age group, and it's 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 not huge, but it's but it's quite big and it's quite competitive. Uh, we'll talk a little more about um, women in running, which you just uh, went over a little bit. Uh, you're married to Catherine Switzer, and you talk about her a lot in this book. But I think you do a very good job of just being an objective observer um, in oh, the way you. in the way that you write about her. <laughs> Uh, so talk about what she's done uh, for running and, and just the development of women and running in general. Well, you're right. I work very hard to to try and be fair, objective, give Catherine credit, uh, but which obviously she deserves. 
uh, for all that she's done, but not kind of go over the top. And sometimes it was a bit tongue in cheek. Uh, when I talk about the, you know, the, the coming feature film, for instance, and which actor I want to play me, um, but, uh, but mostly I was trying to steer away through of making full use of the advantage that I'd had as a historian and observer of living with her for the last 30 odd years and therefore seeing so much of the, the growth of women's running from the inside, from the engine room almost. Um, I wasn't make a, make adva- take advantage of that just as I'd taken advantage of the other privileged positions I've had of being stadium announcer and television commentator and, and so on. Um, but without uh, being mar- maritally biased. Uh, so I think the key thing that I say about Catherine, and, and I'm actually pleased with this assessment, and, and so is she, is that the presentation of her tends to have been distorted by the the starting point of her career, which was when she got attacked in the Boston Marathon in 1967 for running the race as a woman, and the race official uh, tried to rip off her number and physically manhandled her and tried to get her off the course. And her then uh, boyfriend, fortunately in those days, her boyfriend was a lot bigger than I am, uh, and he was able to shoulder charge the official and, and... the incident was in all the papers and did a huge amount to light the spark, to ignite the spark of, of women's running. But that's what I say is what's really important about Catherine is, is not that incident because that incident was a, a man attacked her and a man defended her. What really matters is, this, is what she did afterwards, which was that she then went on as a woman and without depending on men to um, to take initiatives from the absolute ground level up to try and build opportunity in running for women and what i mean by ground level she was at, she was at syracuse she started a track club along with some other people and she you know she licked all the envelopes and and she organized the track meets and 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 she took the flyers around the streets and did all of those grunt jobs uh, and then, of course, that went on, and then she was on committees, and then she got the position at Avon Cosmetics and was able to start a running series, and that became huge, a huge global success. And that was really her greatest single achievement was the, the Avon Global Women's Running Circuit, going to, I think it was 35 countries eventually, uh, and taking running to countries where women had been you know, very much minor Minor citizens, like you know, like Brazil and and Japan, or, you know, where women always walk five feet behind the men, and suddenly they were having races, and ten thousand women were showing up, and that was a most amazing achievement, and it, and it was Catherine's combination of um, kind of organisational perfectionism, um, plus her very considerable PR strengths uh, and ability to sell ideas to people, persuasiveness. Uh, she was really important in in all of that, and all, that basically is is much more important than than just having a bad tempered Scotsman attacker uh, and and be be defended by a husky uh, football player. Um, and that was that was the spark. But but the, but she I mean, she's developed and shaped and made use of the fire all the way through for the last thirty years. That's the kind of summary that that, that I that I give in the book, and I, and I think it's a valuable one. And you you met her at a race. Yeah, we were both speakers 
uh, in, in a, at the Canberra Marathon in Australia. Uh, the women, the women's race was an Avon race. Uh, the men's race uh, was uh, a Nike race, and and I was um, not a not a paid Nike athlete, but I could get expenses from them at that time because I was well ranked as as a as a masters marathon runner at that stage. Um, and well, again, it's a it's a nice story because Canberra, uh, as as you may know, it's the government centre. It's an artificially created federal centre of Australia. And its reputation among Australians is that it's a boring public service, public service centre full of boring, boring public servants. And so whenever we speak in, in, in Australia, we always can absolutely break up the audience by saying uh, we're the only people in the world who think of Canberra as romantic. So, and Australians always find that hilariously funny. Uh, so that, that's, that's where we met. And, and um, yeah, we were, Catherine gave her account of... Um, of women's running, and 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 I gave well, typically a, a somewhat wider, more of a historian historian's account of it. And something else in the in the book, actually, Colin, is is that um, something else I try and do is write the history of women's running in that chapter. Uh, not all about the marathon, because the marathon has partly because of you know Catherine's charisma and because of the correspond the the, the um, controversies and so on has tended to dominate, but there's, there's plenty of women's running history, which is not about marathons. And I briefly touch on the fact that there were international cross-country races between teams of women in the 1930s. And and there were plenty, when I was starting running in the 1950s, there were plenty of women, and we didn't think twice about it. You know, nobody threw them off or, or saw it as being anything unusual. We just we accepted them and made friends of them, and, um, and they were part of the sport. And I explain part of the problems in Britain where I was. Uh, the Women's Federation was different from the men, so we very rarely got to see each other race. Whereas when I got to New Zealand, there was a single federation, and whenever the national championships were held track or cross country or whatever, there was always the men's championships and the women's championships. And, and, and so we all got to know each other. We all got to see each other. We all got to respect each other. Uh, and as soon as that was happening, then women, women's running started to develop. And as I was saying before, it was a matter of enough women having enough, enough affluence and enough incentive, uh, to be able to do it. Uh, but, um, the amount of actual, uh, Oh, prohibition and resistance is is was was not as great as it's often presented. That was there, and I've written about that, uh, but much less so in the 1950s and 60s than it had been in the 1930s. Sure. I want to get to the environmental impact of running that you talk about, and, and specifically, you talk about the Mohonk Preserve in New York. Uh, and one quote that I found interesting, you say. When I run, I'm taking part in the world, interacting with the earth and the weather, fulfilling my nature, running because I like it. So tell us more about how running has uh, positively impacted the environment. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you, you picked on that because for me, that's an important chapter. Uh, you know, I don't have conventional religious beliefs, um, but this sense of the land and the responsibility to the land and of wanting to be part of it would, would be as, as near as I go to that kind of religious, re, religious dimension, spiritual dimension in my life. Uh, running is the main way in which I can experience that. 
And as, as I say, I think quite close to the quotation you just gave, um, that's why I don't, I don't like exercising in a gym because when I exercise in a gym, it, it's, it's only about me. Uh, it's, it's just about, you know, my quads or my biceps or, you know, my core or whatever it is, whatever else. Whereas I'm outside exercising, then it's about me and the world, me and nature, me and the dirt, the trees, the hills, the wind, uh, the, the cold, the cold or the heat or whatever it is, and you're interacting with all of those things, and that seems to me, well, for me anyway, I'll only speak for me. It's it's immensely valuable, and an immensely important part of my life. And I, in that chapter, I tried to express it. And the last phrase that you quoted there, you know, I run because I like it, is a quotation from the poem, the song of the ungirt runners, which I which I quote from a little earlier. Uh, when Sawley says we run because we like it through through the broad bright land and doesn't articulate it any more than that. Actually, wonderful poem. Um, but yeah, this is, it's that real pleasure of getting out there and learning learning the land through your feet. And I've always loved to do that. And and I think that's why I have a strong such a strong sense of of place and in a way such a such an affection for the places where I've lived. Which have been very different, you know, like Cambridge, England, you know, flat and fenny, and and or or Wellington, New Zealand, you know, one of the hilliest, windiest places on earth. Uh, but I know, I know the dirt, I know the I know the trails, I know the hills, I know all the terrain because I've I've run there, and 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 you kind of in you internalize it. And many runners have have this sense, and, and again, that's just something which I thought was worth trying to articulate. And then there's the there's the kind of polemical or political dimension to that, uh, which is where I think running is a big affluent sport and very powerful lobby group now. We've got a lot of influential people who are runners, uh, and I think we should be doing a lot to, for the the environmental crisis that the world is in. And really helping to lead it, and 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 really, we're doing running is doing quite a lot, and I list all of that, um, but I think it could do more, and and that's that chapter in a way was hoping to persuade people to, to use the 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 power of 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 running to to do more for the environment, and ideas like planting trees along marathon courses, and 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 races which are which are. Oh, raising money to set traps to kill stoats to, to to save and killing the native birds in New Zealand, etc. All of that. There are so many ways. The the race in Kenya that 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 I was at, which has actually raised enough money to make a very significant difference to the population of the white rhino and and um, the grevy's zebra, and so on. It's um it's everywhere. It's international, and I tried to make that chapter international. Which the result is, it's a bit of a mess. Um, but I thought, well, I just want to give this sense that this is the world that we're talking about now. And each runner, when you go out and you actually run not on the road or not on, not on the indoor track, but on the trails or on the dirt, uh, you're actually doing something for the environment. And we should make sure that we really are, we really are helping it. And I think running is definitely doing its part. There are an endless number of causes and, ch- and charities. Uh, I think in the book you mentioned the Susan G. Coleman Run for the Cure, you know, things like that, um, that are really contributing positively to the world and the environment. Yes, ab- absolutely. And, and um, people know about running's um, charitable reputation. Uh, so I didn't 
uh, focus a great deal on that. Um, but I, I mentioned that this, the um, the Komen races were very important in the development of women's running because they made they made those races so accessible to to so many different women. Uh, but yeah, the environment is one that people don't think about very much. And, and as, as I say, we're we're a sport that um, we don't create environments. You know, other sports do golf or horse racing or whatever. They they create their environment. We just borrow them. Uh, we just go out and and we borrow some. We borrow borrow other people's streets or other people's farms or parks or whatever. And the next day we're gone. And and I try and express that in the metaphor of saying our our typical building material is balloons. For the arts. <laughs> yes, exactly. And that kind of gets that gets the transience. You know, we're we're there one day, and the next minute, pop, we're gone. Um, and I I had a section that I called visionary venues, which is about uh, some, very few, but some running venues that have been created that really are very, very nice environmental areas, cross-country courses mostly. Uh, and they are really enhancing the environment in the way that, that a good golf course does without the um, oppressive privacy of so many golf courses. Well, uh, before I let you go here, I, I, uh, one thing that I was taken aback a little bit, you said uh, you were training... Uh, and you made you conjured up a fictitious Japanese runner who I'm named Toshi. <laughs> What's he called? I think Toshi. Is it? Yes, that's right. Is that uh, a common practice for you? Uh, no, that that was. Um, uh, I was trying to express the fact that, um, especially when you're in the masters age groups, and you're going to world championships, you have no idea who's going to show up. Yeah, you know, that's um, it might be somebody as it was for for me uh, at the race I described in in 1989. Uh, there was an Englishman called Steve James who who I I had known when he was at Oxford and much better than I was at Cambridge at that date. Uh, but then I'd never actually heard of Jim McNamara. I, I mean, I realised we'd actually run in the same World Championships for different countries. But then there are, there are others. You know, suddenly there are, there are Mexicans and 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 there are Colombians and and there are Japanese. And so I was having to train on my own most of that year um, in nineteen uh, yes uh, eighty nine. Um, and so I invented this Japanese who was always closing on me towards the end of the training uh -huh. session. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, he was called Toshi, because I, uh, <laughs> and, and I would have to dig deeper to hold him off. Well, that's it's not a bad idea. I'm always looking for ways to improve my running times. So. <laughs> well, I do anything that, that amuses me as well. <laughs> so, what uh, are you working on right now, um, both academically and uh, running? Are you looking forward to any races? Uh, I'm currently in a bit of a hiatus because I had a second knee replacement about 15 months ago, uh, and I started to run on it and probably too soon and got pain around the the, the prosthesis. Uh, and what's happened is that um, the muscles, the, th the thigh muscles, had got uh, weakened in the time that I was off running and, uh, and limping and, and obviously nursing it to, to avoid the pain and then through the period of the surgery. So I'm now in the clutches of a physiotherapist um, who's making me do these exercises. And she's absolutely right. And I, I know I've got to do them, uh, but I've always been a very reluctant exerciser. 
you know, I'll go out and run as much as you like, but, but lying on my back and lifting legs in the air is not, is not what appeals to me. Uh, but I'm doing it, and I'm hoping to be back running again in probably two or three months from now. Uh, ready, for the, ready for the new age group. Great. <laughs> uh, and, and then you said on, um, you, asked about, you asked academically in writing. Yeah, well, yeah. Um, two, uh, two books really in process and, and um, with, but both moving along a bit. Uh, one is this writer called Samuel Butler, who I've worked on for years and, and have been trying to uh, kind of shake down the actual format of the book. What I want to do, well, I'm get, I think I'm getting close on that. Uh, but the one I've actually been working on over the last few weeks uh, is um, not exactly a sequel to When Running Made History, but al- almost like a prequel. It's, it's, uh, the idea is some of the greatest running stories, uh, without me being present this time, but just the greatest stories and to tell those stories and to and to uh, show the research that lies behind them, what the true story was. So, for instance, Pheidippides uh, and the Battle of Marathon and, and just what did happen in the Battle of Marathon. The story, the, the chapters I finished so far, Atalanta, the, the Greek myth of Atalanta, the story of Pheidippides, uh, one about the great 1908 uh, London Olympic Marathon with Durando Pietri collapsing and then one one about the another chapter about the subsequent period absolutely fascinating three years of that was called marathon mania uh when there's this whole series of in, indoor marathons run especially in new york usually usually head to head and wonderfully atmospheric and and um and and dramatic at a time of great personalities like durando pietri and alf shrub and and, and the great canadian First Nations Canadian Tom Longboat, um, and a, a, a brilliant, brilliant period of, um, of personality and uh, and and improving, improving running. We're the first great running boom. So that's the I think that's the four chapters I've done so far, and I've got one on on the early running footman, and then there'll be some 20th century chapters, and I haven't got all those totally identified yet, but. Um, one idea, for instance, is is to look at the 1964 Olympic 10,000 meters, and just look at the personalities. It's it's an idea I've always wanted to follow through. Look look at the people in the race and say who they were and tell their stories, and then and then describe the race. And that, of course, was was the one of the most amazing and surprising and dramatic races in history when Billy Mills won the Olympic gold medal totally unexpectedly. So it's a story with a good ending. Well, you're you're a great storyteller, so I, I you're definitely the one to to tell it. And I look forward to seeing that when it becomes available. Well, thank you very much. The book is When Running Made History, and I've been speaking with Roger Robinson. Roger, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank thank you very much, and and um, I think the book's available well all bookshops at Amazon as usual. Uh, and also, if you see me at a at a running expo, I'll be there behind a pile of books. Okay. And and, 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 and happy to sign one. <laughs> Thank you, Colin. I really enjoyed this this conversation. Thanks for going in such depth. Yeah. Thanks, Roger. <laughs>